0: Let's get into the Word of God. We're looking at Revelation under the theme or the title God Wins. And we're going to look at really chapters 2 and 3, but we won't be able to read all of chapters 2 and 3 this morning. Steve's given uh, two uh, talks already, an introductory and then getting into the first chapter. But actually, I want to pick up the reading from the first chapter because I'm not going to read right through the two chapters. And in a way, the end of chapter 1 sort of is beginning to introduce what Jesus uh, is saying to the churches and doing so let let's pick it up at one uh, chapter one and verse 12 this is revelation and we're going to read through uh to chapter two verse seven so if you've got a bible please follow so this is John we're, he, he's he's been he's heard this he's in the spirit on the lord's day worshiping give a little background in a moment and uh, he hears a sound a voice behind him i turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me and when i turned i saw seven golden lampstands and among the seven lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest the hair on his head was like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider for how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches to the one who's victorious I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God and then he moves on to have a message a letter for another six churches uh, which we're obviously not going to read this morning but I am going to refer to them let's just remind you the background and get ourselves orientated to get this in context revelation was written in a time of great persecution It's almost certain that it was written towards the end of Domitian, the emperor Domitian's reign, Roman emperor, which was 81 to 96 AD. And it was a time when Rome was very powerful, Uh, wasn't in its uh, descendancy of later years, hundreds of years later, so it's a powerful presence, particularly around the Mediterranean, but in wider than that, of course, but had a very firm grip on the area where John and these churches were. And the Roman authorities had always encouraged the worship of the emperor as God or the representative of God or sometimes even the son of God, interestingly enough. But that cult of emperor worship had been upped several notches and it was being imposed quite vigorously and indeed enforced across the Roman emperor, Empire, including in the area where John and these churches were. Now that created problems for Christians because Christians then and now believe there's only one God to worship, the true and living God, but particularly he has one son and one representative, if you like, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the only one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the only one we worship. We only worship the triune God. And this was really requiring them to make a choice between going with the culture which was very strong lots of people fitted in with it and the broad view would be do what the Romans want you to do and then the Romans will allow you to do your own little religions there were all sorts of religions tolerated but you had to burn incense to the emperor you had to worship the emperor and actually Christians were not going to do that and as a result some of them had already been killed one is mentioned in Revelation 2.13 Antipas and he was probably one of the leaders of the Pergamum church that had already been martyred because he wouldn't compromise. Uh, The apostle John himself had been arrested and exiled to Patmos, which was, as Steve described, a a sort of penal colony, a sort of uh, island uh, prison. And the churches that John oversaw were battling with this very real problem and it covered the whole culture it was a little bit like being in modern Europe uh, I, I'm afraid I have to draw a parallel in a sense that there were lots of different nations but there was one overarching uh, empire which ruled it all and really made the main decisions and you had to line up with that so there were lots of differences between these particular places cities that are being written to but actually they all had this battle on The pressures were mounting to compromise and indeed many Christians had compromised. That's a fact. Many of them had followed various teachings which rationalised what they did. And the external threat had created an internal threat of division. So there were many Christians who did in fact go with what the culture required. Did their nominal worship to the emperor did this and that and there were all sorts of ways of theologically rationalizing that that just was better to fit in and you know better to be a a live dog than a dead lion as it says in um, in Proverbs I'm sure Christians come up with all sorts of arguments and and some of it was very thoroughly thought out you know we can still worship Jesus and all the rest of it but it was going on and then added to that there was another form of teaching which probably was slightly different, and maybe the Nicolaitans referred to here, which was a sort of super spiritual teaching that allowed you to do what you liked uh, in your life, morally. So you could indulge in sexual immorality and permissiveness because your spirit was pure, your spirit was saved. It was a sort of distortion of grace. It was a sort of uh, super spirituality, you know, that you were, your spirits were pure. It was a Greek thing, and it didn't really matter what your bodies did. And so that was another teaching. Was all sorts of teachings internally causing trouble. And while tussling with this, which John would have been doing, and in prison himself, unable to get to the churches, he's worshipping the Lord. He's just on, uh, uh, in the spirit on the Lord's day. And then suddenly he has an encounter with the risen Jesus. And it's an incredibly life-changing time for him. Right here, we read it already. And out of this... He receives something from Jesus, and it is different to the other letters. It's not like Paul, who's led by the Holy Spirit, but it's a very much more, um, what should we say, ordinary sort of writing, rational, arguing cases, talking about specific things. This it comes over part prophecy, as well as part letter, and and it's like it's that's what Jesus is saying, and John is just the conduit for Jesus' words. Much of the New Testament's not written like that. This one is. It's apocalyptic. It's prophetic. And it's like, this is the word of God to you. This is what Jesus is saying to the churches. And in this whole amazing book, there is a perspective of heaven that John gets hold of that's incredible. And he sees that what Jesus sees. He sees how Jesus sees things. He sees how Jesus sees the churches. How Jesus sees spiritual warfare. How Jesus sees political movements. And how he sees world history. Now, the book was clearly occasioned by what was happening in the first century AD, by what was happening, contemporary events and circumstances. But it also speaks for the whole church age, and it speaks to forces that will constantly be operating right up to the end. That comes out very clearly, but it's actually specifically stated in one of the verses I read. Revelation 119 says this, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. So the whole book openly has this dual purpose. This is for the Christians now and what they're putting up with and it is for those who will come later and we're in that category. It is a timeless application. It's also predictive of stuff that hasn't yet happened in some cases. Clearly towards the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, we're dealing with things that are still very future to us. It's definitely then rooted in contemporary life, but for the whole church. The whole book is a comfort for the whole church. Now when you get to these uh, seven churches, Christians down the ages have disputed a little bit how you deal with chapters 2 to 3. They are so clearly addressed to seven specific churches that some people, and you can imagine this is on one wing of it, see it as just a a, a curiosity just for the first century church, very specific for the battles mentioned, Nicolaitans and things, the precise battles that they were having then. The other extreme, which actually I've heard many times in my youth when I was growing up, is that it is actually a prophetic picture of the church age and the seven churches are seven ages right up to the end and that teaching usually says we are the Laodicean church we are living in the Laodicean church age lukewarm Christianity you know losing the plot and Jesus is about to wrap things up now I personally do not agree with either of those extremes as you might gather I don't agree with either of them I think that uh, the first one is just a, a very human view and, and I, you know, you, you chop the Bible to bits if that's the only thing you ever did. It's got an application for us as well. The latter one, I, I, even fe- I remember hearing someone teaching that when I would have been a teenager, late teenager. And I remember thinking then, before I was baptized in spirit or anything, this is a very Western-centric way of interpreting it. If, you know, if you've lived in the Western Europe or America for the last, uh, during the last 50 to 100 years, you might say it's Laodicean age. If you've lived for a start in Eastern Europe and Soviet Russia or communist China in the 20th century, the Laodicean church would have no application to your experience whatsoever. You would not have been going through a lukewarm, easy time. People were prisoned and dying for their faith. Actually, in our day and age, if you were a Christian in the Middle East, in Iraq or Syria or whole swathes of the Middle East, if you're a Christian probably in areas of India like Orissa where there's been persecution, if you're a Christian in China still and many Asian countries, South America, in fact most of the world except for the Western European Christians, the Laodicean church is not applicable to you. It is a very limited way of interpreting it. I think it is incorrect. I think actually these six, seven, sorry, churches are, yes, they're for then, but they're for the whole church age. And there is a sense of if the the cap fits, wear it. There's a sense in which sometimes it will apply to some churches, sometimes to other churches. But I tell you what, these letters and the whole of Book of Revelation really kick in when you're under pressure. They are letters, that's a writing that makes a lot of sense to a church that's being, being bashed about, to a church that's being persecuted, to a church that's feeling under the caution, on, under pressure. That's always going to be where it really engages. And so actually the whole concept that quite comfortable Christians, and I am one of those, can sit and speculate through Revelation about where exactly does... You know, Saddam Hussein fit in. Where did Kissinger fit in? Where did, uh, you know, Hitler fit in and the Pope and all the rest of it? Historic. That is not how it's supposed to be. (laughs) Revelation is a comfort and a challenge to us in the cut and thrust of life. It has got a predictive element. I'm not denying that, but you have to be rather careful that you don't try and get too precise with that. So this section is the same. It has an application for us in a broad sense with the lots of encouragements and challenges in it. Now, I'm going to talk now for for a few minutes about it, looking, trying to look at the encouragement angle. And Jim, in two weeks' time, is going to talk looking at the challenge. Is that right, Jim? No doubt, if you haven't prepared already, you'll be coloured a bit by what I'm saying. Uh, I'm sure there'll be overlap, but we'll try and both serve you in our own individual ways. Now, the way I want to look at it for us today, I want to ask three simple questions, which, of course, I will answer, endeavour to answer, looking at at these chapters. Here's the first question. What is Jesus doing now? If that could go up, please. What is Jesus doing? doing now you see Jesus is risen from the dead he is alive and we love to celebrate that rightly so victorious risen from the dead at the right hand of the father in heaven and in a sense there's a timelessness about heaven so that's fine you know Jesus up there what's he doing is he just sort of chilled out with his feet up just waiting till father says will you wrap it all up go back to earth and bring the end Uh, is he sort of just uh, you know watching the old reruns of things he did on earth and no, no of course not of course not what is Jesus doing now because heaven and earth do intersect we are locked into time heaven isn't but that doesn't mean that heaven can't engage with time and it does It does. I believe we have angels amongst us sometimes. I believe there are angels that have responsibility for each church. The angel of the church I don't think that's about the minister. That would be out of all kilter with the rest of the New Testament. I think it's about a spiritual uh, guardian or, or watchman for each church which I think we'll have. There's one assigned to Hope Church Winchester. I don't know if they saw that as the short straw up in heaven but one of them's got the job. And And and, and Jesus, what is Jesus doing now? And this is thrilling and slightly scary. It is very clear that Jesus' main occupation, if I can put it that way, right now, before the end comes, right in our time space world, his main occupation is a total focus. Not a total focus because there are other things to do, but a focus on his church and his churches. And in picture form, he is seen as walking amongst the churches, which are like lampstands, like oil lamps. And he's walking, tending them, checking that they're bright and burning properly, trimming the wicks, putting some oil in, and rather challengingly, occasionally snuffing them out. Jesus finishes churches off. Jesus removes lampstands, not the devil. And Jesus occasionally says, this is doing no good whatsoever, We'll snuff it out. That is clearly what we're told here. That Jesus knows what is happening in his church. He is engaged in church. He walks amongst the churches and he tends them. He knows what each of his churches do, are doing. And I say churches deliberately. We sometimes like to think of the universal church. Correct to do that. But the universal church breaks down into lots of local churches. And actually this is about local churches that Jesus knows about. Very detailed. He knows the socio-political circumstances of each church. He knows what Winchester's like. He knows the strengths and weaknesses of Winchester. He knows the propensity of the culture that we live in. That comes through in these letters. He knows that sort of detail, the circumstances of each church. He also knows individuals within the church. And of course, we all love to know that Jesus knows me personally. He does. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God is big enough, big enough to know about you and still be able to run the the universe. And actually, Jesus is God. He's part of the triune God. And Jesus does know you and own you as his own even though he has all these churches uh, uh, on his mind, if you like, and he is engaged with them all. And he knows what we're up to. He knows which individuals have compromised, which individuals are doing well, which ones are faithful and hanging on despite trouble and suffering, which ones have grown cold and have been distracted in one false teaching or another. He knows... Very well, what's going on in our lives. He knows about subgroups within a church. Jesus knows, hear this, subgroups in a church. He knows that some are doing this and some are doing that, and some of you are doing that, and some of you are doing this. Now, just to remind you of what's here, because we haven't had time to read it, I've asked that it's on the uh, PowerPoint we're just going to quickly get that point really home let's look at Revelation 2 14 to 15 nevertheless I have a few things against you there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam Jesus knows that who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality likewise you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans Let's look at Revelation 2 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so called deep secrets, I will not impose any further burden, any other burden on you. He precisely sort of sections those out, those who he knows have not got involved in this false teaching. Look at the next one, Revelation 3 and verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So Jesus knows, you know, some of you are doing this, some of you aren't doing it. And then he even seems to appeal to individuals. Let's look at this one, Revelation 3, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, and he's talking about individuals, hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and meet with that person <clears throat> and they with me. So Jesus is actually making appeal to individuals in his church. He's actually saying, if any one of you responds to my appeal, I will engage with them about this. Now, let's stop for a moment on this what's Jesus doing now and say what Jesus is doing now is knowing all about Hope Church Winchester and every other local church. And we are important to him. You could say, but what about all the big stuff going on in the world? What about the new Labour leader? What about the uh, political uh, conferences coming up? What about the European crisis with the refugees? What about Russia in the Crimea? What about ISIS? What about this? What about? That? Well, the world that was going on here was full of stuff like that, absolutely full of it. And it's not that Jesus is ignoring that, but actually says, my priority is my church. And I want to get my church right. And you, do you know that is still heaven's priority? The church of the living God is the most important body of people on the planet. From heaven's perspective, the church is the most important body of people and what is happening in the church is all important to Jesus very clearly so and it is still true and for that reason he has a great interest in church and the members of church and what they're doing David Pawson puts it like this his knowledge and understanding are total his judgment is accurate his opinion is crucial Basically, that is about you and me. <laughs> Jesus understands and knows us. He has views and judgment on it. And his opinion is what really, really counts. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our difficulties, our trials, our temptations. Actually, I thought when I was reading this, it's quite interesting. Jesus is very aware of Satan's activity. And, of course, you, you get a lot more insight... Um, from Jesus, actually, about Satan than you do even, for example, in the Old Testament. It seems like the nearer you get to heaven's core, the more spiritual warfare is, is, is part of the, the, the uh, uh, um, revelation, literally, with a small r. Uh, that, that there is more to life than meets the eye and that sometimes in the battles between flesh and blood, there's demonic activity going on big time. And we get that insight and so... Jesus helps us to understand that behind much of what we put up with and hostility towards the church and us, there is demonic activity. I think when I was reading this, that reminded me that Jesus treats Satan quite seriously uh, in a way that maybe sometimes we don't. Okay, Jesus then is intensely interested in us. He is our Lord, He's the head of this church and of every church, and church is important to Jesus he clearly places a great value on the local church and I would say so should every one of us which is not how always commonly done but actually local church is very important to Jesus now let's be very clear Jesus knows that church life is not what it should be He knows it's full of disappointments and human weaknesses and sins and even hypocrisy. That comes out very clearly in these seven letters. It actually is a factor in the writing of other letters in the New Testament. Paul is often addressing problems when he writes to the churches. So don't let's you know, don't throw the argument at me. Oh, John, you you, you know, but the church is such a mess and it's hypocrites and people are horrible in it, so how can you say it's so important? That is exactly the perspective Jesus has. He knows full well it's got all sorts of factions, some of which shouldn't be behaving like they are. And yet, he loves the church and she is important. That is never, ever, ever an excuse for giving up on church. Don't tell me, because I won't accept it as an excuse. It is never, ever an excuse. You never give up on church. You may sometimes change church often for good positive reasons, occasionally for very serious challenges and you feel that God's speaking to you about it, I accept that and I I respect that. But the idea that church is optional, that churches can be treated as a consumer product and that actually if it doesn't meet my needs, why should I go there? And actually after all nobody's nice to me or it didn't do this, it didn't do that. That is ludicrous, that's not biblical at all. Jesus is fully engaged with church and he knows it's a battleground and he knows with great distress and sometimes anger that the church isn't what it should be but he still loves it and presses on with it. Amen? That's how Jesus is. Okay, let's then go to the second question I want to ask. How does Jesus encourage us? How does Jesus encourage us? Now, we live in an age which is big on encouragement. And uh, I think we, we today, I mean in an age, I mean in a culture, I'll be more precise. I'm not sure it's true in other cultures in our world. Sometimes when you go to other nations, you realize they, they do work differently. I remember going to Russia and uh, being involved with church leadership in Russia. And I was quite shocked sometimes at how the elders spoke to one another. They had Basically, rouse. Good old Russian rouse, Victoria. You know what Russians are like. Being one, you know, they let it go. They they tell each other what they think of each other. They shout at each other, and then they make it up, quite happy. And they all sit in the banya afterwards, laughing and talking. In the uh, what's the banya? It's a thing where you'll go all hot with no clothes on. <laughs> Sauna. That's it. And and so they and you think this not. It sounded as though we were about to have a church split, but like we were just having an ordinary elders meeting. Now, we actually live in a culture which is the opposite. We have really dialed out. You are not allowed to say anything critical. Everything has to be cheered and commended. And criticism is often considered an offensive way of carrying on. We're only allowed, really, to say what's good about something. I, I think we've moved away from this, but I remember when our kids were at school. I think it we moved because I used to be a school teacher, and I used to enjoy doing reports where you used a bit of sarcasm and all the rest of it, and said, you know, you know, this stuff. If he worked as hard with his pen as he does with his mouth, he'd be a genius and all that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, we used to love doing that sort of thing, and suddenly it all went. It all went, and our kids got reports where there was nothing negative said at all. And if there wasn't much to say, you occasionally got, Luke always turns up to the lessons fully equipped. <laughs> what sort of report's that? Because there was nothing they could think to say. And, and I, I think you've moved away from that, dear teachers, but I think there's a sense in which that is about as much use as a, I don't know. I don't know can't think of an illustration that you think uh, uh, real encouragement needs a bit more oomph to it and i'll tell you why the word encourage is not just about patting on the back let me give you even a dictionary definition here it is correct dif- dictionary definition encouragement is to put courage in it is to inspire spirit and hope aha so yes we do say good things but not only good things You encourage people by highlighting sometimes what needs to change, but helping them to change. Real encouragement provokes action for getting things done. And biblical encouragement is real encouragement. Jesus' encouragement is real encouragement. And I want to take a couple of moments just to enjoy what he does as a principle. So when Jesus comes to these churches, the first thing he does is remind them of who he is. And these are wonderful reminders. We're just going to go through them very quickly. At the beginning of each one, look at Revelation 2 verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, who's in charge of the church. Revelation 2 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Revelation 2.12, to the church at Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Revelation 2.18, to the church at Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Revelation 3.1, to the Sardis church, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. The church at Philadelphia, these are the words, Revelation three seven. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And finally, to the Laodicean church, 3.14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Wow, that's pretty encouraging to know who's in charge of the church. This is the one who is in charge of the church. And this is the one who is engaged in church and interested in church. It is encouraging in the full sense of the word. It's encouraging like, wow. It's encouraging like, I better do something about how I behave then. In other words, it provokes action and change because Jesus has eyes like blazing fire. Jesus knows what's going on. And so there's a big thing there in that who he is and what he's doing. Then there, we're not going to go through this in detail. We can't. Then there is clear, con- comment, sorry, commendation, clear commendation about what is good. Jesus acknowledges it and says that's good. But there is equally clear complaint about what is wrong. Jesus doesn't just gloss over that. He doesn't just pat them on the head. He's, even though some of them are having a tough time, he says, well, you're doing very well there, but not so well there. That's not good. And then there is constructive advice about what to do, about what's wrong. Please understand, I'm telling you what real encouragement is. We need to understand, real encouragement is, we're getting to know, this is Christian encouragement, we get to know who Jesus is and who's in charge. We need to know what we're doing well and we need to keep doing it and be encouraged to do it. We need to know what we're getting wrong. We need to know where we're missing it. And we need to know how to put that right. It's not just a moan. It's not just a complaint. There is a constructive direction given, guidance. And then finally, there are promises, particularly of rewards for those who respond to his word. So there's a whole lot of promise to focus on. Now this is proper biblical encouragement. You and I need to know who Jesus is, and this Jesus is with us. We need to know what he likes and keep doing what he likes. We need to know what he is offended and annoyed about, if you like, what he finds offensive, and we need to know what he's asking us to do about that, how we put that right. And all of us need to live daily in the light of the promises that God gives, the promises of forgiveness, of new life, of hope, of blessing, etc. That's full-bodied encouragement. Full-bodied encouragement. And we need to allow Jesus to speak into our lives like that. Now how's he going to do that? He's going to do it partly through the Bible. So when you read the Bible you are looking not just to be encouraged like patted on the head. You're looking for stuff that tells you, oops, you're missing it here. I need to put things right. There should be an element like that where the Holy Spirit speaks to you. The Holy Spirit is active in our company and sometimes in our worship, in the words that come, in our prayers, we will have encouragements where God's insight into our lives is is highlighted. He knows we're under the cosh in some way and he's encouraging us but there'll be other times when he puts his finger on something through a preacher or through a word spoken and we need to let him do that and respond to that challenge when he puts his finger on a nerve. And actually, sometimes more precisely, he will use one another. See, in the New Testament, there's quite a lot about exhorting one another, admonishing one another, and encouraging one another. So actually, and this is slightly more subtle and needs a bit more care, actually, one of the ways we truly encourage one another is by talking to one another and helping one another. Now, for you and me, to not only commend but challenge and direct one another is not quite the same as Jesus doing it directly because the person doing it, me, let's take me, I will also be imperfect. That's the first thing. So if I'm going, Peter, I'm sorry, I'm going to bring you in here. If I feel I want to say something to Peter, I need to know Jesus loves him and be sure I'm going to say positive things if I feel there's something to challenge sorry Peter you don't mind do you? you can live with this broad shoulders I need to bear in mind that I also have things that are not right in my life and Peter may actually want to highlight one or two of those when I speak to him I also need to know something very important only Jesus knows the whole story of Peter's life I don't I may have feel that there's something which I think is a bit out of order And I think God's prompting me to help Peter put that right. But I need to remember, A, that I've got my own faults, and B, only Jesus knows all the things that are going on. Here's an irritable person who's treading on everybody's toes. They probably need to be helped not to do that, but you may not know what they're battling with at work or at home or in their health. Jesus does know that. So there's an extra dimension that only Jesus knows. So we always tread softly. But treading softly doesn't mean we don't do the full work of encouragement we must not just be trapped in 21st century british culture and even american culture and californian culture where you chap and cl- clap chap you don't chap you clap and cheer every tiny little good thing and you're not allowed to say a bad thing we are allowed to speak the truth in love that's how the bible works and we should commend okay let's look at lastly who does Jesus commend? It's fascinating to see who Jesus commends in these letters. This is our last point. I'm just going to quickly read them out to you, not in the Bible, but just my own little list here. It, listen to it carefully. In Ephesus, Jesus commends hard work, perseverance, the intolerance of wicked people, critically, in other words, critically examining false teachers. He commends that enduring hardship for the sake of Christ, and he commends not growing weary under pressure. In Smyrna, Jesus commends people for being spiritually rich, even though they are not rich uh, materially. He commends them for enduring demonic-inspired persecution, for staying faithful even when they have been suffering. Jesus commends that. In Pergamum, Jesus commends Remaining true to him despite a lot of demonic inspired power of the culture not to. In other words, standing against the demonically inspired culture which says don't remain true to Jesus. And therefore, a link to that, he commends them for not denying their faith even under threat of death. Thyatira, Jesus commends growing in love, growing in faith their deeds of service to others, and their perseverance. Sardis, Jesus doesn't find much to commend, but the church which looks good and spiritually dead, he does know the individuals who have not compromised their faith, and he commends them for still walking in a worthy manner, manner worthy of being his disciples. Philadelphia, he commends patiently enduring, keeping God's word despite being weak, and staying obedient to him. Laodicea, I'm afraid, he finds virtually nothing to commend. But the one positive thing he mentions is that he expects some of them to wake up, open the door, and invite him back in. Now, all of this is quite interesting, and we haven't got long to explore it, so we won't take long. But let's just think generally as we come to this last part. It does seem that Jesus has a slightly different value system to ours. It's my guess that Sardis and Laodicea, who he hardly has anything to commend in, would be pretty high on our list of commendation. I honestly think that's true. I think we would have seen Sardis and Laodicea as pretty successful churches. Why? Because both of them were having a quiet time. They weren't being persecuted much. The culture around was happy with them. Sardis, it says, you have a reputation for being alive. So people thought it was a great place to be. Laodicea, it says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired much wealth. I do not need a thing. So obviously, they looked good. that Everybody was doing well, and everything was tickety-boo. So actually, at these two churches, Jesus has practically nothing to say, but I think we might think, they were very successful. Think there's a good church. Sardis, good church. Later, see a good church. Whoa! All the businessmen are there, or whatever. You know, I don't know how we do it. But what does Jesus commend? That's not that those things are wrong, because you're going to see it's not like you should be poor and being persecuted. They're not the things he wants to happen to them. These are the things he commends. In my words, if you endure suffering and trials and stay faithful to him. That Jesus loves. So when things are tough and you don't give up, Jesus says, well done. That is high on his list. He commends hard work. How prosaic is that? Hard work for his church and for his kingdom. He commends holding on to the basic truths of the gospel when there is a big pressure in the culture not to he commends linked to that avoiding compromising with the values of the society around you he commends recognizing and exposing false teaching and we have to say jesus does not seem so excited about tolerance as we are he actually commends some of them for being intolerant Ooh, that's not very 21st century is it intolerant of things that attack him and the gospel i'm not saying you'll be nasty but you're not tolerant of them i think we just need to hear what it says most commentators say the sort of teaching that these the let's get this correct the people jesus is commending for rejecting this teaching the teaching they are rejecting was almost certainly advocating that you absorbed the values of the pagan culture and the Roman culture and therefore did not cause offence to the authorities or to the people around you. Please listen to me carefully. Most of the commentators say that. I think we are dangerously close to doing that across the board in modern churches. Just let it sink in. Not having to go at any one. But the main thing, Jesus says, well done. You have not absorbed a sort of syncretistic theology that allowed you to accept the values of the culture and worshipping the emperor and things like that and worshipping Jesus and so kept you at peace with the authorities and the culture. That is possibly the main thing that Jesus commends those who reject that teaching. And I have to say that as I read this, I thought we probably have many areas in our modern world where we are on the edge of tussling with this. Areas of sexual ethics, areas of marriage, denial of absolutes, the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, areas of intolerance to sin and false teaching, areas about hell and eternal judgment. There are many areas where the drive will even be in evangelical circles that in being missional, we need to dial down on this. That to be acceptable to people, you have to absorb this and do it. Now, I'm not saying it's an exact parallel, but it's perilously close to what Jesus condemns. And Jesus commends those who don't go down that road. Just let that settle. Because what we're looking at is what Jesus, hear me, really thinks. You see, Jesus is not a product of 21st century modern Europe. Nor is he a product of 1st century Middle East. Jesus is timeless. These are timeless words to his church. We aren't battling with the Nicolaitans. We're not battling with this and that. We have our battles. But these are the things Jesus says. Well done... When you hold on to my basic truths despite what the culture says. Well done when you endure under difficulties and trials. Well done when you don't compromise in these areas. Now let me finish by saying Jesus is full of love and mercy and grace. These are not legalistic letters. Actually, Jesus is not yet totally rejecting any of these churches. He's warning them. Even Laodicea, which he says makes him feel sick, which is literally what it means, he has not yet spat it out of his mouth or vomited it, which is probably the literal meaning. He says he actually rebukes it, but then he says in verse 19, with a glorious promise, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. And he even says, the ones I love, I rebuke. Don't think we put that up. Verse 19 earlier. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Jesus says, I love you and I want you to change. Even at Thyatira, Jezebel has been given a chance to repent and her followers have. You can read it for yourself later. We haven't got time. 2 verses 20 to 23. The Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. It's not an open door forever. It's not open-ended. But Jesus is saying, please just let me back in please repent and he gives Jesse. he doesn't shoot her you know three strikes and you're out he's actually appealing to the churches to turn back to him so we know that he loves us and he wants the best for us these letters are relevant to us they tell us that Jesus knows all about us individually and as a church they tell us what he is likely to do when he communicates with us he's commending us and encouraging us in that way He's going to challenge us and want to put us right. He's going to show us what to do to obey him and expect us to do it. He's going to remind us of his power and his availability and who he is and his promises. And as we end, I believe Jesus wants just to speak into us for a few moments. So I do want a band to come up. Um, and I want to follow the Holy Spirit as best I can in the last few minutes. Um, I know we've got, as ever, a little bit of time. I'd like a few minutes if we could make sure the children's workers. Now, it won't be massively long, maybe five more minutes. I just feel that Jesus knows about us, and I think he wants to, to speak into us this morning. Let's all stand together. feel God would say to us at the beginning and I haven't prepared this I just felt it prompted right now that when we when you're listening to, to this message when you're reading my word as as you've read it this morning you can actually feel condemned because you think my life is easy and comfortable compared to many others and compared to these churches but the Lord says to you Do not be distracted by your comfort. I have blessed you. I have provided for you. I love to see my people doing well. I bring no condemnation about comfort or wealth. But I do want to speak to you about heart attitudes. You must never make those things a priority over and above obeying me and I feel God saying he knows that some of us have actually endured quite a lot of hardship it may not be persecution like the early church yet but hardship in life we have had constant pressure from circumstances and even from people relatives and friends to compromise our Christianity to sleep with our boyfriend or girlfriend to not be so fanatical about church to be more moderate more acceptable and Jesus commends those of you who have held on to him when pressures have been great to back down on your Christianity some of you have been criticised in some quarters perhaps those who know you well for the time and the money you've put into church Jesus says that was given for me I want to remind you of the woman who poured out the perfume all over me and they said it was a year's wages That what a waste but I commended her and I commend you I know your deeds, says the Lord. I know what you have done, how you have chosen to put me first in some of these areas and have felt the pinch and the awkwardness and the criticism. But I commend you, says the Lord. Well done. I really, this is me, not prophesying. I really feel that you not to think of this as, you know, raise your eyes above just Hope Church or something or you know this church as such as a mechanism, as a as a system this is about Jesus and he says when you put my church first, you put me first thank you Jesus Lord I, I want to pray for this church I think they're a wonderful church I think many, many people here have been faithful to you Lord we heard three people on Wednesday who kept worshipping and praising you in quite trying but ordinary trying circumstances I want to thank you for the scores and hundreds even of people I know in this church and have known who are walking faithfully with you who are holding on to what they've got who are not compromising people who are desperate maybe to get married but know they they're going to not compromise. They're not going to compromise their sexual behaviour just because they feel a pressure in that area. People who feel the pressure of not being able to enjoy their singleness just feel, I'm really happy with it. I feel a pressure in the church one way. I feel a pressure in the culture. Why aren't I having sexual activity? i pressure in the church to get married. And I don't feel either's right. I'm just... I'm just wanting to serve God and enjoy him in the freedom he's given me. And I believe Jesus says to you, well done. I know your heart. I know how you are walking with that. And as some of you who've served faithfully with hard work, and you sometimes think, has anybody noticed? Well, Jesus has noticed your hard work. And he says, well done. The most important person knows all about it. Just let that settle in your spirit. Keep pressing on, says Jesus. Keep persevering. I know it's not been easy. I wonder if we could sing one song, John. I just want to pray as John gets round to that song, just start in a moment John, I pray Lord that you would just bless, personally bless many of my brothers and sisters this morning, Lord I can't have the insights you have, you can give me some perhaps but Lord I pray that you go and whisper into the hearts of many here, well done well done people misunderstood why you did that, but I know why you did it well done Lord just please speak to these dear friends thank you Holy Spirit perhaps we could sing a song and I've just got one other thing as we finish I believe there's some and it's not surprising in the battles of life some who feel I've really compromised I've sinned I know I've compromised in a serious area I know Jesus knows about it I know about it I think it might be in areas of personal morality but it could be just in attitude to the church even I felt and Jesus is appealing to you just turn back to me there's some awful things that have gone on in these seven churches some of the Jezebel and all the rest of it it's pretty serious I think but Jesus is saying come on repent even Laodicea he says here I am anyone opens the door I'll come back in and fellowship with you I want you to know you have not gone too far away from Jesus or his church that you can't come back you haven't gone too far away he would say here I am I standing at the door of your life and knocking open the door up let me back in let me help you get back on the rails Maybe there's even one or two this morning who've never, ever asked Jesus into their lives at all.
1: And although this verse is
0: to Christians, this door door and knocking verse, it can be applied to you. Jesus is standing and knocking on the door of your heart. And he's saying, you know all about this. You've been around church for a long time. You've already heard it several times. Please open the door this morning and let Jesus into your life. So what I'm going to suggest, because we have got to go for the children, and rightly we need to collect the, um, the, the, the Christ children quite quickly so that the room can be ready for coffee, is as we sing this again, if you feel, I would like to really pray through something where I need to do a bit of business with God with a bit of help, and it could be enduring a hardship... But I'm also thinking of those who may say, look, I just want to get back on the rails with Jesus. I feel, I've blown it. You don't have to tell the individual you pray with too much detail, but you, you might want to pray with someone to seal it, and make it real. Almost like a witness, I'm, I'm coming back. Or if you want to become a Christian and to know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, if you're in any of those categories, as we sing this, can you come forward? We'll have some people to pray with you. We can always um, add to that number here. We can adjust. We will pray with you as we...